while your day is winding down. They're just getting started. This is South Coast Tonight with Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. They've got you covered on all the news of the day. From local issues to politics on both sides of the aisle. This is the place where the movers and shakers come to be heard. To listen. And where they're held accountable. This is South Coast Tonight on WBSM. South Coast tonight. I'm Marcus. Chris will be back later in the week. But we're joined now um, by Dr. Brian Glenn Williams of UMass Dartmouth. Hey, Professor, how are you? Hey, good, Marcus. How are you doing? Good. So, for people, I know I've had you on a few times. You've been on with Jim Phillips a few times as well. But for people who might not know who you are, can you just introduce yourself to the audience? Yes. Well, I'm a professor of Islamic history uh, at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Uh, although I've spent a lot of time working. Uh, in Ukraine and Russia, uh, I've got a couple books out uh, dealing about the Crimea, which I used to live in, the Crimean Peninsula, uh, and I speak Russian. So I, this is sort of a, an area I focused on, and I did my PhD on uh, back in the, in the 90s. So we're speaking with uh, Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. He is a foreign policy professor. Uh, he's a foreign policy expert and a professor at UMass Dartmouth. So you were um, so just before we get into um, some of the some of the um, the work you've been doing over there, can you just sort of give us the you know there's there's an ongoing uh, brutal conflict uh, between the um, Russia and the Ukrainians. We had Congressman Bill Keating on a couple of weeks ago, actually, to talk about some of the horrific things that are that the Russian uh, our, uh, military is doing to the people over there. But can you just sort of tell us what the, the, the current state of the war is? Yeah, so, you know, we're coming up, uh, Marcus, on, on the year anniversary uh, of this so-called special military operation. Uh, Putin had this bold vision uh, of doing a, a sort of shock and awe style decapitation blitz and storming into Ukraine and toppling the Zelensky's democratic free government. And that failed. Uh, they retreated back to the Western borders uh, and they thought they would use a, you know, sort of a, a World War II style war of attrition to grind down the Ukrainians. Uh, but we saw the Ukrainians surprise everybody uh, by resisting the Russians, uh, repulsing them at the Battle of Kiev. Uh, and amazingly enough, uh, the Ukrainians, who are, are vastly outnumbered, vastly outgunned, and everybody sort of thought they'd be crushed quickly by the Russians, including many Americans and, and NATO members, and certainly Vladimir Putin, uh, the head of Russia, they thought they'd be crushed. But the Ukrainians managed to rebound and actually go on the offensive uh, back in September and take vast swaths of territory. Uh, they liberated about half the territory that Russia uh, initially conquered with this massive 190,000-man army. Uh, which they invaded with uh, back in February 24th of last year. So now we're at a stalemate. The Russians are throwing hundreds of thousands of, of conscripts into this uh, sort of um, meat grinder, this slaughterhouse, a World War One style. You up over the trenches, and the Russians storm into the Ukrainian lines, into machine gun fire and artillery fire, trying to just bludgeon the Ukrainians with sheer numbers. Uh, the Ukrainians describe it as fighting armies of zombies as Russians just storm over their own people, uh, irregardless of lives lost. So the Russians certainly don't care about the troops, um, the deaths, like the way most you know, NATO armies do, or Ukrainians certainly do. And according to the latest estimates, uh, the Russians have lost 60,000 killed uh, in one year of fighting. So that's more than we lost uh, in 10 years in Vietnam. And when you include all the casualties, it's probably up over 200,000. 
So uh, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. Uh, he's a professor at UMass Dartmouth and a foreign policy expert. So um, when you say conscripts, just so people know, that means that the Russian is uh, the Ru the Russian government is basically drafting people into war um, because I guess it seems as though the numbers that they had aren't aren't good enough to um, withstand what the Ukrainians are putting out. Yes, you know the, the numbers aren't good enough to crush the Ukrainian fighting spirit, which is combined with this wonderful NATO and American weaponry. You know, uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, uh, HIMARS, you know, high mobility artillery rocket systems. You know, so they have they have the best weapons in the world and the best fighting spirit. And it is grinding down the Russians. You know, they, they can't crush the Ukrainians. Uh, with their, the Russians have poor morale, poor leadership, poor logistics. You know, they don't know why they're there fighting against Ukrainians who are, are their Slavic Orthodox brothers. Um, so to make up for their lack of, of skill in fighting, uh, they're A, bombarding Ukrainian cities and wiping out power grid and killing civilians and throwing these conscripts. Uh, that, as you mentioned, people are just being drafted into this war. Uh, back in the, after they got crushed by the Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, in Kherson, uh, and also in Kharkiv, uh, back in September, uh, Vladimir Putin declared a, a national draft, a, a, a partial, uh, conscription and drafted 300,000 Russians, uh, to go bolster his army and basically rushed them into the war to try overwhelming the Ukrainians with sheer numbers. And I've heard stories of people, you know, men in towns like St. Petersburg, or Moscow being captured by these uh, Russian recruitment teams, dragged from their jobs, from shopping malls, from the streets, from their homes, and thrown into battle with little training and poor you know, uh, equipment and, and poor um, uh, weather clothing and, and dying en masse uh, to try overwhelming the Ukrainians with these mass assaults. So um, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. Uh, he's a, a professor at UMass Dartmouth and a, a, for, a foreign policy expert. So um, one of the things that you, you when we mo most recently spoke, which was a couple weeks ago now, but when we most recently spoke, you said you were just uh, you were in Brussels. You were giving a speech um, to uh, the European Parliament. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about that? Yes. So uh, I was invited to come speak to the European Parliament uh, in Brussels uh about sort of the history of Russian warfare and genocide. Uh, I've written three books on these sort of topics. Uh, I used to live in, in the Crimean Peninsula with a, a small Muslim Mongol ethnic minority uh, called the Crimean Tatars. And my talk was sort of giving a history of how Russia wages this, this uh, scorched earth form of warfare. They call it the Russian way of war. We go and just slaughter and burn everybody and you just throw your troops in irregardless of their loss of lives. And, of course, the Russians have a long history of committing genocide, you know, going back to Ivan the Terrible, uh, killing all the Tatars in Siberia. And Vladimir Putin, of course, began his career uh, by launching a bloody genocidal war on the free mountain people of Chechnya. Uh, I've written a book about it called uh, Inferno in Chechnya. Uh, and he wiped out 20 percent of the Chechens and basically atom-bombed uh, their capital, uh, Grozny, with uh, uh, cluster bombs and you know, sort of uh, incendiary bombs and uh, carpet bombing and artillery, sort of like what he did to you know, Mariupol uh, in Ukraine uh, over the last uh, few months. So you said you mentioned um, you mentioned Ivan the Terrible. That was back in what the 15th century, maybe um, 14th century. And you're saying that they're they're basically their war ta their warfare tax tactics have been pretty much the same since then. Yeah, you know, going back yeah 1500s. 
uh, Yvonne the Terrible. You earned the name the Terrible for a reason. <laughs> you know, yeah, they, they have wiped out so many ethnic groups and destroyed ancient cultures. You know, many people think that the first genocide in modern Europe uh, was the Ottoman Turks uh, doing genocide to the Christian Armenians uh, back in 1915. But in actuality, the first genocide in modern Europe was the Russians marching into the mountains of the Caucasus, which separate the Middle East from Russia, and exterminating a beautiful ancient race so effectively, uh, a race called the Sakashians. They were so effectively slaughtered and wiped out by the Russians that most people don't even know their name anymore. You know, we, we've all heard of the Armenians or, or the Georgian race or the Azerbaijanis, but the Armenians weren't the first genocide. You know, uh, the Russians wiped out the Sakashians and have done this sort of thing for centuries. So, um, you talked about the Crimean Peninsula. You'd spent some time there. We all, I think, a lot of people listening will vaguely remember or more vividly remember um, uh, back in 2013. I think it was back in 2013. Obama was president and uh, Putin had decided to invade the Crimean Peninsula. Where, what is, you know, what was the result of that invasion and how is the Crimean Peninsula now, uh, you know, especially with all of this this going on? Yeah, so the, the, you're almost there. It was 2014. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, Obama was president and uh, Putin launched this, un, you know, uh, invasion of not just the Crimean Peninsula, April, uh, March of 2014. He asked it in, in April. Um, uh, a sort of a beautiful peninsula that, that juts out from the southern Ukraine. Uh, into the, the Black Sea. Uh, as I said, I, I, I've written two books about it. I have a deep passion for the, the Crimean Tatar people uh, who I lived with there. Uh, he conquered that peninsula, and also he conquered eastern Ukraine, a very economically wealthy part of Ukraine, uh, two areas in, in the Donbass region. And the Obama administration and the European Union leveled sanctions against Putin, but they weren't firm enough. They weren't strong enough by far. And in many ways, by not doing more, this fed into uh, Vladimir Putin's belief. Two things. The West was disunited, uh, and America and NATO wouldn't unite and stand up to him, and that he could get away with further aggression, and that America and NATO would just lie back and do nothing, and that he would quickly conquer you know, the entire country of Ukraine, wipe out his democracy, and kill his president. So I think you know, Putin learns from his, his violence and his aggression, and he thought by annexing Crimea, in 2014 and not getting a huge blow like he has now. His sanctions now have crippled Russia. Uh, the Biden administration has done far more uh, to punish Putin this time uh, than Obama did back in 2014. Uh, but I think he misread the resolve uh, of the Americans and NATO to finally stand up to him, as they've done uh, with this round of sanctions. And, of course, this remarkable uh, support from the Biden and the European Union and NATO uh, to the tune of over $100 billion dollars being given an aid and military packages uh, to assist Ukrainians in standing up to Putin with a modern day Hitler. So you are, um, so you are, very, uh, you seem very supportive of uh, Biden's response uh, to this and NATO's response to this. Is there any criticisms to their response? The only criticism I have is that they didn't do more quicker. You know, okay. I think we've seen incrementalism. You know, at the beginning of the war, uh, the Germans. Uh, who are of course uh, afraid of wars? Have, have, you know their because of their history. Not allow them to give weapons. Yeah, yeah, right. The Germans, their constitution does not allow them to give weapons uh, to belligerents. Yeah. Uh, when the war began, uh, Olaf Scholz, the German leader, 
said he would give the Ukrainians 5,000 helmets. Uh, but we've seen as the Ukrainians stood up bravely to the Russians, and we learned that the Russians weren't 20 foot tall, they were like 5 foot tall. It's the Ukrainians who are the great warriors. You know, they're almost like the, the Chechens or the Finns who defeated the Soviets back in 1939, or the Spartans standing up to the Persians. As, as Europe and Americans saw the Ukrainians and Zelensky, who's an icon of resilience, you know, modern-day Churchill, as we saw them stand up and repulse wave after wave of Russian assaults, we began to send more and more weaponry, you know, more and more advanced weaponry, including now we've seen they're sending uh, Leopard 2 main battle tanks uh, from Germany, uh, Challenger tanks from Britain, and M1 Abram tanks from America. So, you know, the weaponry is getting bolder and more powerful and more effective. Uh, we need to be sending them long-range artillery so they can destroy command posts, uh, interdict supplies to troops, and launch an offensive. And, of course, hopefully repulse uh, this offensive that the Russians have launched just in the last, say, six, seven days. So we're speaking with um, Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. He's a uh, foreign policy expert. He's also a professor at uh, UMass Dartmouth um, over here in the South Coast. So... Uh, you you were talking a little bit about this. Uh, we talked a little bit about this. You, you'd met with some Ukrainians um, that are part of a civilian force that are going to be purchasing drones? Yeah, so when I was in Brussels uh, uh, speaking to the European Parliament, uh, I had the pleasure uh, of meeting with some Ukrainians who are just, they personify and epitomize the sort of uh, fact, fact that the Ukrainians are a nation at arms, you know, civilians. Uh, elderly people, young people, uh, civilians uh, or teachers and things have all en masse joined the, the fighting uh, effort. And I met with some brave Ukrainians uh, whose job it is is to travel to Poland. And uh, there they, they purchased sort of um, uh, online Chinese consumer quadraptor small drones that they then, to circumvent uh, sanctions on Ukraine, they can't buy them directly from Ukraine. And they these... these, these uh, Ukrainian civilians I met then drive from Warsaw to Kiev and then to the front line, and, and they jerry-rig and, and reshape these civilian drones to drop IEDs, drop grenades and things on Russian troops and to monitor and, and you know, sort of watch for uh, uh, mortar strikes and artillery strikes. So they're, 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 some of them are actually um, former drone operators who used to film weddings. So they gone from being wedding drone filmers <laughs> to frontline, basically, Air Force flying drones for Ukrainian troops. And this a couple of guys I met with were actually bringing these drones and flying them for Ukrainian special forces fighting right now in Bakhmut, uh, this bloody meat grinder uh, the Russians are trying to uh, conquer for the last, you know, uh, several months uh, with this Wagner uh, mercenary group. So um, when, we, uh, when we had spoke, um, like... Probably, uh, we were talking. You were talking about a Russian offensive to try to um, to try to uh, interfere with the arrival of those German tanks. Was that successful? No. You know the Ru Russians ha have been repulsed over and over and over again in this town uh, of Bakhmut. You know they're moving. They're they're planning moving. You know hundreds of miles. Instead, they're moving. You know maybe inches and, and feet and, and 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 a few miles per month. And they're carpeting. They're carpeting the ground of Ukraine with Russian bodies in this failed attempt to break the fighting spirit of the Ukrainians who are standing firmly and repulsing wave after wave of, uh, uh, you know, of Russian uh, troops. And the hope of the Ukrainians and NATO and Biden is that we can get these, these tanks to the Ukrainians to repulse this Russian offensive 
and maybe, maybe give the Ukrainians the opportunity to take even more of their land back. Because I think the only way to end this war is to repulse the Russians and teach them one lesson. You can't continue this Russian way of war and destroy democracies. And they have to be taught a lesson that violence and aggression and conquest and destroying democracies doesn't pay off when it comes to economics or the cost of blood. You know, the body bag is coming home to tens of thousands of grieving Russian families. Before we continue, um, you'd mentioned you've written three books on, um, you know, Russia, Russians, um, you know, uh, Russian aggression, uh, the, their, their history with the Ukraine. Can, can you tell us the titles of those books? Yeah, so I think one book that is pertinent uh, is called Inferno in Chechnya. Uh, it's about uh, Putin's first war. You know, he came to power in 1999-2000 by slaughtering this race of ancient mountain highlanders who I've, I've got to become quite familiar with over, over the years of my research. Uh, and it's called Inferno in Chechnya. Uh, another book I think that would be uh, interesting to the readers, uh, listeners, um, is uh, The Crimean Tatars. It came out with uh, Oxford University Press. And it's based upon my months of living uh, in the mountains of southern Crimea, this beautiful peninsula, that's right, the tourist resort uh, of the former Soviet Union uh, and, and now Russia ever since 2014, living with this ancient Muslim race. Uh, they're now uh, being brutally occupied by the Russians who hate the Muslim Tatars, and they're drafting these Muslim Tatars and throwing them into battle as cannon fodder, as they are their own people, of course, uh, which is uh, sad because the Tatars are the friends Right. Of the Ukrainians. You know, I, 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 I speak Turkish and, and Tatars very close to that. And I had a wonderful time living with this ancient race, indigenous race uh, of the Crimea. It was risky. You know, the Russians were fighting with the Tatars at the time. Uh, and uh, But I really had a wonderful hospitality and a lot of warmth from the Crimean Tatar people. And to see them and the Ukrainians, who are our ancient friends and allies, being thrown into battle against one another by Vladimir Putin is just another one of these, these Russian criminal acts and war crimes you know this is a crime against humanity so i know that the um i know that the the casualties in uh, as far as the russian army like you said they're they're starting to conscript people the casualties have out been out uh the russian casualties have outweighed the ukrainian uh, ukrainian casualties um there has been some pretty horrific things that have been done to the ukrainian people by the russians but um all in all it's you know like you like we said it, ukrainians is, is winning this conflict is there an is there a light at the end of the tunnel is there an end in sight not anytime soon. You know, uh, the Ukrainians feel that the wind is behind their back. You know, mm -hmm. they have the, the continued support uh, of NATO. Uh, NATO and the Biden administration have proven that they won't back down, uh, that, they, you know, they're defiant. I think that the importance of, of Biden's trip to uh, Kiev uh, just recently, the last few days, hours, I'm sorry, today, is tremendous. You know, uh, I think the Ukrainians won't back down because they have the fighting power and they're so angry. Uh, and all this butchery and slaughter and rape. You know, don't forget that last March and uh, February, the Russians went into the, the town of Butcha and systematically shot down civilians. Yeah. They captured young women and girls and raped them and put them on fire. Uh, they massacred people all over Butcha. They, they found Mariupol, a town of 400,000, and they wiped it off the map with artillery. You, you don't need tactical nukes in this day and age to just exterminate a city of almost half a million people. The Russians show you can do that with thermobaric bombs, fueler explosives, which are banned by Geneva Conventions in civilian areas, with long-range artillery and bombing. So the, the Ukrainians are angry. You know, even if Zelensky wanted 
to have a peace treaty now with these Russian invaders who butchered tens of thousands of their people, the Ukrainians wouldn't want it. They feel the winds behind their back, and they're holding off the Russians, and they want all their territory back. Whereas the Russians, you know, the, Putin has staked his legacy on this war. And Russians believe his propaganda that they have to invade Russia. Russians believe they have to invade Ukraine and kill all these Ukrainians to stop, quote, quote, Nazis. Which is ironic because, you know, Zelensky is a Jew. Uh, he's not a Nazi. Uh, the Russians are the ones who are acting like Nazis. Uh, and, of course, Putin has doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down on this war with these conscriptions. Uh, and, of course, the right-wingers, the militants, the ultra-patriots uh, in Russia uh, are, are pushing for a victory, too. And they feel that they can just dominate and win the war with sheer Russian manpower. You know, what they lack in fighting spirit uh, and, and leadership and logistics and, and bravery in many ways, they can make up with just sheer raw numbers. So neither side has any initiative or any sort of urge to end the war right now. So I don't, I don't think until either side feels they've met their battlefield objectives uh, that we can have some sort of negotiated peace uh, treaty. So uh, we're speaking with um, Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. He's a professor at UMass Dartmouth and a foreign policy expert. So you said uh, Putin staked his legacy on that uh, on this war. So what's you know if if you know you said there's no end in sight, but if there is um, an end to if there is an end to this war that results in the Ukrainian victory, maybe a, a shoring up of NATO, um, you know, NATO allies and me membership. You know, we have seen some increased, uh, I guess, uh, application for be lack of a better term uh, for countries that are going into NATO, that want to uh, join NATO. What does that mean for the future of, of Putin and his sort of uh, imperial, not, not only his imperial aspirations, but just his reign over Russia in general? You'll go down in history as a failure. The man who bankrupted Russia on this mad dream of, of uh, rebuilding the Russian sort of almost Soviet-style power. He'll go down as a man who massacred tens of thousands of his people and threw them into battle in this wasted effort to, to conquer and annihilate Ukrainian identity. And ironically, this man who thought he'd make Great Russia, uh, Russia great again, Velikaya Russia, they call it, the Great Russia. This man who thought he would make Russia great and crush any NATO aspirations and, and humiliate the West and divide NATO. All he's done is the opposite. He's strengthened Ukrainian national identity and resolve. Uh, he's de facto made Ukraine, which is never going to be part of NATO anyway. He's mm -hmm. de facto made Ukraine part of NATO. You know, they, they, Ukraine has been armed so quickly and trained so well with so much state-of-the-art NATO technology in the last year, you know, including Gephardt, German anti-aircraft weaponry and, and, and German Panzerfaust anti-tank weapons. They've been trained by Green Berets and British Special Forces. They're getting Challenger British tanks. Uh, you know, they're getting Polish S-300 anti-aircraft missiles and, and, and T-72 main battle tanks from Slovakia. This country has been de facto NATO-fied, or NATO-ized, if, if that's a word, uh, in the last year, which is ironic. And as you mentioned, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has rattled and terrified nations that weren't part of NATO, and ironically, driven Finland and Sweden. You know, Finland has an 800-mile border with Russia, uh, going up from St. Petersburg up to the Vermont Sea there. Finland, which has always been neutral, just like Sweden, have now applied, as you said, to join NATO. So he's acted, Putin has acted as an inadvertent recruiter for NATO countries uh, and has strengthened this alliance. You know, don't forget that uh, at one time, 
uh, Trump wanted to pull America out of NATO. Yes. Uh, John Bolton, his, his national security advisor, said that if Trump had won the second term, he would have pulled America out of NATO, mm-hmm. which would have been catastrophic if, if Trump had done that. Instead, you know, Biden has, has doubled down, tripled down on NATO. And, and Macron, the French leader, was, was also complaining about NATO. Now everybody's all on board. These countries in NATO that were, were, weren't you know, paying their enough for NATO and weren't having enough in their defense budgets are all, all now rushing to increase their defense spending. So Putin has catalyzed the unification of NATO uh, and has unified the cross-transatlantic alliance and has led Finland and Sweden, historic neutral countries since 1945, even earlier uh, for Finland, to join NATO. A little bit of a pivot here, um, but we've, uh, you know, every time this conversation comes up about Russia and wanting to do it, Russia, you know, in Putin's imperial aspirations, China always um, is is almost always brought up in casual conversation. People talk about whether or not they're going to uh, invade or take take over Taiwan, um, whether or not they have an interest in what uh, Putin is doing or, uh, the, you know, Putin's success or failure. What role does China play in this sort of um, in, in this uh, in this conflict? Well, you know, just before uh, Putin invaded uh, Ukraine back in February 24th of last year, you know, about a year now, uh, Xi Jinping and Putin met and signed uh, an agreement, a friendship agreement uh, that was supposed to last all time. And I think the signing of that that agreement gave Putin the confidence to launch this quagmire that has blown up in his face. Right. Uh, so tragically. Um, and the Chinese have watched. You know, they've watched how the sanctions that Biden enacted, uh, Biden pushed the European countries to throw uh, Russia out of the SWIFT code, for example. They, they can't do international trading. Uh, Biden administration and the European Union have, have seized overseas assets from Russian banks and things. Um, and, of course, international companies in Europe and America, you know, BMW, Boeing, Starbucks, whatever, McDonald's, they've all, on their own volition, pulled out of, out of Russia, the economy of Russia tanked uh, from number 11 in the world to number 22 in just a matter of months, and it keeps spiraling down. Uh, you know, the air fleet, Aeroflot, and other airlines are, aren't going to fly in a few months because they don't have spare parts. The Chinese are much more connected to the global economy uh, than Russia. You know, Russia is basically just uh, a gas station, as John McCain called it. All it does is sell uh, is oil, right. natural gas, um, which it can't do to Europe anymore because the European Union and Germany have cut off. Uh, they're not supplying the Russians. They're cut off the, the, the Russian oil and the natural gas, and they're buying it from other places. So they've seen the way Russia has lost its market uh, of natural gas and, and Nord, Nord, Nord Stream pipeline uh, going to Germany. They, they've lost that market. They cut their own noses and their, their ears off despite their face. Putin thought he could blackmail Europe in a cold winter, he called it, with no natural gas coming from Russia. But the Europeans just pivoted and bought their natural gas from other places, and they survived just fine. So he lost his entire number one market uh, for natural gas, which is the European Union. And the Chinese, as I said, are much more globally linked to the economy uh, than Russia, have watched these things. And they've learned one thing. European Union, and of course, America's allies in Japan, uh, South Korea, etc., Taiwan, uh, will all launch sanctions against them should they try doing the same thing in Ukraine. And, of course, the military losses have been catastrophic uh, for Russia. So this serves as a valuable template, a lesson for Xi Jinping. You know, can he really project his, his forces across the Taiwan Strait, from, from the Straits, and conquer Fortress Taiwan? 
uh, with the, the you know, American Pacific fleet there supporting them. You know, we, we have a lot more support for Taiwan, historically, of course, than we do for Ukraine. So if, if the European Union and NATO and the Biden administration have given this much to Ukraine, which is peripheral compared to, to Taiwan, imagine how much more so it will be for Fortress Taiwan, which has a much more significant, better trained modern military than that of Ukraine. So I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a lesson for Xi Jinping on what not to do. And I think a lot of this you know, uh, fear-mongering you hear on Fox News and things about them going for Taiwan, uh, these were overlooking the fact that, that that battle is happening right now in Ukraine. You know, the, the Putin was going to pass by many of these uh, Trumpian right-wing people, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever. Trump himself uh, said that Putin was a genius for invading uh, yeah, uh, Ukraine. Yeah, Pom- Pompeo said he was like a brilliant statesman. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Mike right. Pompeo, former Secretary of State for Trump. Yeah, uh, these people come out and actually praised uh, Putin uh, for this catastrophic invasion and this mass murder campaign. I, 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 as someone who grew up myself idolizing Ronald Reagan for standing up to Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, and telling him tear down this wall, I, I admired that great cold warrior, Ronald Reagan. This acquiescence and this, this support for Putin on that sort of fringy element in the Republican Party. Uh, I don't understand, but, but they're, they're, they're rending their shirts and tearing their shirts and gnashing their teeth about a potential invasion of Taiwan, which you know I, I don't see coming, uh, especially based upon this Putin's catastrophe and what it's done to his economy uh, and people uh, and isolation that it's done to them uh, in the last year. Dr. Brian Glenn Williams, I appreciate you joining me this evening. Uh, before I let you go, where can people go to uh, learn more about your work and um, and uh, uh, your the books that you've written? It's always a pleasure, Marcus. And uh, if you do want to read more about uh, my field work uh, in Ukraine, going back to the Soviet era, I, I spent time uh, as an exchange student in Kiev and Moscow back in 1986. Uh, and my books and my articles and uh, images and things I took in these war zones, uh, please see my, my website at brianglynwilliams.com. And Glynn is G-L-Y-N. Brian Glynn Williams, thanks so much for joining me this evening. Thank you, Marcus. Take care. That was Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. He's a professor at UMass Dartmouth. Uh, um, really, a, a incredible breadth of foreign policy knowledge. So it's always interesting to have him on to talk about you know what's going on, especially with his the specific expertise that he's had has uh, definitely um, been good for conversation here uh, on WBSM. So thank you to Dr. Brian Glenn Williams for joining us. I got to take a break, but when I get back, I'm joined by you if you want at 508-996-0500. Also taking messages on the WBSM app chat. Yes, it's 508-996-0500 to say you can join me this evening or we're also taking your messages on WBSM app chat, uh, open phone lines for the rest of the show. That was Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. He is a uh, professor at UMass Dartmouth, has been there. He's been there for a while. And um, he's also a foreign policy expert. You heard he, he, gave, he delivered a speech to the European Parliament, spent time in Afghanistan. He spent time in the Crimean Peninsula. So uh, pretty tapped into to the goings on over there. We've been covering this here um, for some time. Uh, I think you know it's 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 not hyper local, but what is local about it is that there are people that are from our communities or representing, like, you know, like Dr. Brian Glenn Williams, who's a professor at UMass Dartmouth over here in the South Coast, or people 
you know, representing our communities like Congressman Jake Ockenkloss and Congressman Bill Keating, um, who are on the front lines of uh, what's going on globally, whether it be the war in Ukraine um, or our, you know, geopolitical tensions, our geopolitical tensions with uh, Xi Jinping and uh, and China. So um, that's all on podcast. Uh, this hour will be on podcast too. I think it's really important. Um, it's important stuff. And if we've got people from our communities that are out there doing good work or, um, you know, informing people about, uh, what's happening over there, uh, which is important, you know, as Congressman Keating had said to us, um, before we have a treaty with NATO and, uh, we have an ironclad treaty with NATO. And if, Russia expands their imperial march beyond Ukraine if they're able to, and they invade NATO countries, um, then, you know, it's a boots-on-the-ground war, right? It's a boots-on-the-ground war for the United States. So there's a lot to consider, especially with this broad, you know, this, this conversation that's that a lot, some members of Congress are trying to have now with um, ending the conflict uh, or ending our support for Ukraine. Um, it's something that I, you know, I think about quite a bit in terms of whether or not, like, you know, my good left is by supporting this, but I think there's important points to be made uh, about, um, you know, about trying to help uh, the Ukrainian people. And uh, frankly, I, like I said it before, in terms of the war in Afghanistan and the war uh, war in Iraq, um, this one I think is a lot more bright lined in terms of who is actually the bad guy here and who um, should we be helping and what you know what end does it serve the United States by helping you know um, these individuals? Whereas in Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't believe that was as bright lined. But five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. Gotta take another break. We'll be right back. This is South Coast tonight. Download the WBSM app and listen to us everywhere. Did you know you could? Did you know that when you make time to do three simple things each day with your children—talking, reading, and singing—you're helping to shape and strengthen their brains for the years to come. I love to look at the pictures in a book and notice little details about the characters. I pause along the way to ask my child to wonder about how they might feel. When you ask open-ended questions like, what do you notice? Or what do you think will happen next? You're inviting them to be curious. All these rich conversations help develop both their vocabularies and their thinking skills. And it's a great way for you and your child to bond and discover the world together. As a father, helping my child is the most important thing to me. Each of us has the power to create a strong start for our children by talking, reading, and singing with them from the moment they're born and help them to enter school ready to learn and succeed in life. Visit TalkingIsTeaching.org for free tips, resources, and ideas on how to transform everyday moments into magical moments for learning. One's on the left, left the other on the right. right. But they're both ready to call it right down the middle. More of Marcus and Chris on South Coast tonight here on WBSM. Hey, welcome back. Hey, so I see a couple of calls in line. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to call back at nine uh, after, in, in the nine o'clock hour or hold. You can either hold or call back in the nine o'clock hour because we um, here at South Coast tonight 
are so um so blessed to to have um these robust commercial uh spots with so many people who want to sponsor the show and um you know uh and what i think you should do is you should listen to them buy their products and then uh, talk to me in the nine o'clock hour so i'm grateful for our commercial partners uh for sponsoring the show and i'm going to take a break so you can listen to them and you can and you can buy their stuff and then uh, i'll talk to you in the nine o'clock hour if you want to hear everything good evening welcome back to south coast night i'm marcus uh we are wrapping up the eight o'clock hour again thanks to dr brian glenn williams from U- from umass and we'll be joining um we'll be joined by you in the nine o'clock hour so i'll see you i'll see you then again 508-996-0500 if you want to rejoin me in the nine o'clock hour uh open phone lines open discussion we can talk about whatever you'd like (laughs) depends (laughs) depends but give me a call we'll see